We are continuing in our study of the book of Ruth, a great, great book of the Old Testament. Last year we studied the book of Esther, and this year we're studying Ruth just for our kind of our end of summer study, and then uh, we got some more stuff we're going to do this fall. So as we continue in his word right now, would you bow with me and let's pray and ask his blessing. God, I don't know about these folks, but I I can't seem to get enough uh, from your word. Uh, Every time I read it, things seem to jump off the page, and that makes sense because self-declared, your word contends to be God's word. Uh, to us, your truth, your, your love, your grace, what you want us to know about how to rightly follow you this side of heaven. And so, God, I pray that as we open your book now to chapter 3 of Ruth, that God, once again, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray we might understand rightly the narrative and the flow here. And then, Lord, most importantly, may we all be men and women of integrity and leave here today with a renewed commitment to live to act upon what you so graciously reveal to us. So empower our wills, enlighten our minds, and soften our hearts, we pray, in preparation for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if there's something that I find almost every sane human being likes to see in another human being, it's this thing called integrity. Can we all agree on that? Integrity. I don't care where you are in the spiritual relational spectrum, almost all of us love to see integrity in other people. There's a really funny urban legend that's been around for years about a cigar smoker who bought several hundred expensive cigars and then had them insured against fire. And after he'd smoked them all, he filed the claim, and then he pointed out that his cigars had been destroyed by fire after he smoked them. And as you can imagine, the company refused to pay, and so the man sued, and the judge ruled that because the insurance company had agreed to insure them against fire, that they were legally responsible. And so the company paid the claim, and when the man accepted the money, the company had him arrested for arson. (laughs) Now, the reason that most of us love a story like that, the reason that you're going to repeat that story this week to somebody in your sphere of influence is because we all like to see justice done, right? We all like to see integrity get its due. We like to see a sense of fair play in our society. We don't like it when people cheat or swindle others, even insurance companies. We all like to see integrity in our fellow human beings around us. I was thinking about it this week. I thought, you know, all of us like to be treated fairly in business transactions, right? All of us like the teachers in college that gave fair and impartial tests. All of us like politicians who don't lie. We like neighbors who are honest. We like fellow church members who speak truth but do it graciously. Integrity is simply this. It's knowing what is right and doing it regardless of the consequences. And I find that each and every one of us loves to see integrity. And it's because of this that integrity, when you think about it, actually transcends time and it transcends culture. In our understanding of the history of the world, every culture has admired and even coveted this thing called integrity. And though there is so much more else to it, the Old Testament story of Ruth, the story that we're looking at this month here at Scottsdale Bible, is very much about integrity. It's very much about knowing and doing what is right and then choosing to do that. If you remember back to Ruth Ruth chapter 1, the right thing, thing was for Ruth to choose to follow the one true God leaving her homeland and becoming a part of God's covenant community. And despite the consequences, and I mean things like leaving family and culture, tradition, and homeland, she did it. 
And then last week, as we looked at Ruth 2, we saw that the right thing for Boaz to do was to recognize all the blessings that God had blessed him with, this great grace that had been given to him, and then choose to become a blessing to pass grace on to others, as we saw especially to Ruth. And he did it. Think about it. Choosing to follow God despite the consequences and choosing to be a vehicle of God's grace, two choices of integrity, two incredible calls to do the right thing. And today, as we turn the page into chapter 3 of Ruth, in keeping with our theme, we begin to get to the heart of the matter as integrity is going to be modeled for us and defined in the words and actions of these two central characters, Ruth and Boaz. And so to see what I'm talking about, I want you to open up in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth is the eighth book from the beginning of the Bible, so it's toward the beginning there. Go to Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to stay here for the rest of our time this morning. And as you're turning there to get our bearings straight, just remember that Naomi and Ruth are now back in Bethlehem after being gone for 10 years in a faraway country where their husbands had died. And now they're back and they have no money, no livelihood, very little hope. But as we saw at the end of chapter 2, this rich and godly landowner named Boaz has taken an interest in them and things just might be looking up now. So let's read what happens next in chapter 3. The first half of this chapter, by the way, basically concerns Ruth and Naomi. The second half is going to concern Ruth and Boaz. So notice with me how it all begins in the first seven verses of chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And if you're tracking with this at all, you're saying, whoa. I got to tell you, folks, this is the closest thing you're going to get to a 3,000-year-old story in which one woman makes herself very known and that she's interested in another man. And yet you're asking right now, well, Jamie, you just gave an introduction on integrity, so how does any of this have to do with integrity? Two things I want you to notice with me about this first half of the story, two things that will clearly show you how what Ruth did here was full of God-honoring integrity. And, And so first, just so that we all understand what's going on here, notice with me that what Ruth did was risky. That's the first thing we need to see in order to understand the storyline here. What Ruth did here was very risky. Risky. So this scene begins with Naomi having devised a plan for Ruth's future security. You do realize that, right? I mean, the whole reason that Naomi came up with this plan that she did, we're going to unpack it here right now, was all about Ruth's future security. You see, in that culture back then, security for almost all young women was attained by being married to a solid and responsible husband. 
And we know that Naomi was concerned about this for Ruth because as far back as chapter 1, verse 9, while still in Moab, Naomi was encouraging her daughter-in-laws, remember this, to stay there in their original families and find another husband now that their husbands were dead. But as we know, Ruth chose to go to Israel with Naomi. And so now, once back in their homeland, Naomi, already being attuned to Boaz's character, knowing that he was one of their close relatives, as well as to the fact that Boaz had taken a strong liking to Ruth, Naomi devises a plan here to kind of help things along a little bit. That's what Naomi's doing here. She's trying to take this initial attraction between Boaz and Ruth, and she's trying to kind of foster it to get closer and closer. I find that mother-in-laws can be kind of wily. Do you all agree with that? That's basically what's happening here. And Naomi's being kind of wily in her plans here. And the heart of Naomi's plan was for Ruth to get Boaz's attention in such a way that he would not fail to notice her and would not fail to get the message that that she was interested in him. You see, Boaz was much older than Ruth. Both Naomi and Boaz call Ruth daughter, which means that Naomi and Boaz were probably of the same generation. And so it would not be immediately clear to Boaz that Ruth would be interested in him. And so Naomi has a plan. Now that the barley harvest has just ended, she knew that Boaz would be spending a lot of overtime down at what they called the threshing floor. Look up here on the screen. I'm going to give you a picture here. These are actual threshing floors in and around Bethlehem right now in modern-day Israel. They're very, very similar to the threshing floors that they had back then because it's still an agricultural environment in many ways. And a threshing floor was simply a place where grain was threshed, where it was beaten and trampled on in order to get the chaff, the bad parts, away and out of the wheat or barley, the good parts. And these places were out in the open air on hard clay stone surfaces just outside the city gates where the west wind, as the chaff would get beaten out, the west wind would come along and blow it away and not blow it, obviously, into the city. They called this winnowing. And threshing was a citywide event in Hebrew culture back then at the end of the harvest with dozens of piles of barley which had just been picked would be piled up there and now they needed to be threshed. And so people would thresh from most of the afternoon when the wind was the strongest. Then they'd have a big meal with lots of celebration. And a few men, those who owned the crops and wanted to protect them, would actually spend the night on the threshing floor there to protect their crops. So if you see on your right there, you see a a pile of grain there. They would spend the night kind of right behind or near a pile of grain to be protected from the elements, but to protect their crops. And this is the place that Naomi is talking about when she tells Ruth her plan, the threshing floor. And notice that she tells Ruth the following. Now, don't miss this. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4 there. First, she directs Ruth to wash herself, perfume herself, put on her best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Four action verbs there you don't want to miss. Wash, anoint, put on, go down. And make no mistake about it, folks, she was telling Ruth to get all gussied up to make herself attractive and desirable to Boaz. That word anoint there surely means with perfume. In fact, some uh, translations of the Old Testament actually include, because it was in some of the original Hebrew translations, that she was to anoint herself with myrrh. And we know from our understanding of the Old Testament that myrrh was actually the kind of of scented spice that was used in intimate romantic settings in the Old Testament. 
And in keeping with an air of mystery and secrecy and even being somewhat provocative, she tells Ruth to not make herself known to Boaz until after he had eaten and even had a bit of wine. I mean, she's setting the mood here. And then using four more direct words and phrases which reveal the very risky, intimate overtones associated with her plan, Naomi instructs Ruth there in verse 4 to observe where Boaz goes to lie, go to him, uncover his feet, we'll get to that in just a minute, and lie down with him. Four more action verbs that Ruth is to do. Observe, go, uncover, and lie down. I put it in green highlights there for you. And Naomi says at this point to just do whatever Boaz tells you to because he'll take over. And you got to believe that Ruth was thinking at this point, yikes, I'll bet he'll take over because she knew exactly what Naomi was doing here. You see, folks, that little directive of Naomi's to uncover Boaz's feet is filled with a good, proper, yet very risky meaning in that culture back then. There's actually two different exegetical options that commentators take when we try to understand what does it mean in that culture that she was to uncover his feet. The first option, and I'll explain this more in a minute, is that this uncovering was only about a symbolic meaning of being one's kinsman redeemer. I'll get to that phrase kinsman redeemer in a minute, but just suffice it to say for right now that Boaz had an obligation if he was one of the relatives to redeem Ruth and Naomi and to marry Ruth and that part of what Ruth was doing here was uncovering his feet in some sort of symbolic way. There might be some slight evidence in the Old Testament that this was the case of basically saying, I want to marry you, I want, to be your, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. That could be one of the options of why she did that here. But another and even further exegetical option here is that this uncovering is also about a move of intimacy giving a sense of a provocative nature here, an intimate move of one person to another. And so listen to how one Old Testament scholar puts it. He says the question is whether the storyteller meant to be ambiguous and hence provocative. It seems to me that he did. Therefore, the intentional ambiguity of the translation legs here, which leaves open the question, how much of his legs? He says, it is simply incomprehensible to me that a Hebrew storyteller could use the words uncover, wing, in chapter 3, verse 9, and a noun for legs, all in the same context, and not suggest to an audience, his audience, that a provocative set of circumstances confronts them. And folks, I believe that the commentator is right here. That in addition to the issue of a kinsman redeemer, which we'll get to in just a minute, there's also an intimate movement here. That Naomi has painted a scene that was very, very risky for Ruth, but one, as we'll see in a minute, that was needed for Ruth to understand, for Boaz to understand Ruth's interest in him. Please see, what Ruth was doing was clearly risky. She knew that her move toward Boaz was provocative, and she had no way of knowing in what way he was going to respond. She knew that she needed to do this because of her culture, and she needed to hint to him that she'd be interested in marriage, but she had no idea what he was going to do with this and where this was going to go. Now, hang on to this and note a second key thing that we must understand then about Ruth's side of this story, and that is that not only what Ruth did was risky, but what she did was also right. What she did was right. And some, if not many of you, are thinking right now, well, how exactly is that, Jamie? 
I mean, she's obviously coming on to Boaz here, which might not be like totally sinful, but it is aggressive. And so how in the world can we suggest that this is right? In order to understand this, folks, we need to first understand some very significant things about Hebrew culture at the time of Ruth and Boaz. You might recall this or or not, but in chapter 1, it tells us very early on in the story that this story is taking place during the time of the judges. Do you all remember that? The time of the judges. And we know that in the time of the judges, this was a time of moral chaos in which it tells us that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And further, we also know that this was a very male-dominated society. And so not only was it male-dominated, but people were really messing that up. And so there was a lot of polygamy and there was a lot of abuse going on in this male-dominated, morally chaotic culture at that time. And so in this culture, think about it, women found much security and protection when they got established in a very good and proper marital union. In other words, it was vitally important to be married back then, especially if you were a younger woman. And so the primary concern for most dads in that culture was for their daughters to get provided for and protected for in a good and proper marriage. And when you look closely at what's happening in Ruth 3 here, there are actually two key Hebraic laws that were working in Ruth and Naomi's benefit. For those of you who really love the Bible and are taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. There was the marital redemption law found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and then the land redemption law found in Leviticus chapter 25. And you're thinking, what are those? Well, the marital redemption law simply went like this. That if you were a guy and you were married and you didn't have any sons yet, and the guy died, leaving a widow with no sons, then the guy's brother or closest relative had an obligation to marry his brother's widow. And they did that, again, because it was a brutal culture and they wanted to protect family lines. And so this marital redemption law said that you pass it on within the family, if at all possible, when it comes to the loss of a husband. And so now that Ruth had lost her husband, there was this thing called the kinsman redeemer, this marital redemption law at play here, that Malon's closest relative, and Boaz is one of the more distant relatives, had an obligation to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Do you see that? It's called a kinsman redeemer. And then they also attached the land to this, that if Naomi or Malon owned any land, and they did, and that land had to be sold because they were poor, and they did, that the closest relative also then had to buy back the land to keep the land in the family. These were laws to protect the family back then. And so they all know that this is in play here. I mean, in chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi says to Ruth that this man is a close relative, one of our redeemers, a kinsman redeemer. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth says to Boaz, you are a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. In fact, check this out. This phrase, redeemer, appears 20 times in nine verses in Ruth. It's a really, really clear theme. And so, folks, with this understanding, I hope you can see now that what Ruth did in responding to Naomi's plan was indeed the right thing. Naomi knew that security had to be achieved for Ruth. These were perilous, desperate times, and it was critical for Ruth to have a husband who was upright, that would be a protector and a provider, and there weren't all that many men of integrity around back then, and so only a direct approach was going to get Boaz's attention amidst all the other women and distractions of that time. And Naomi understood the culture a lot more than Ruth did, but Ruth was no dummy. She also understood the risk. 
And the key passage here is in verse 5. Look up here on the screen when it says, And she, Ruth, replied, All that you say I will do. Make no mistake about it, folks. Ruth did the right thing. She wisely listened to Naomi and trusted in God's laws at that time, as well as his protective providence, despite the risks. We're going to unwrap this more in a minute, but there are many times that we need to listen to wise counsel, especially wise counsel that is supported by God's word, even when the counsel seems risky and even a bit insane. Now, hang on to all of this and notice with me that the story then goes on to tell us what happens with Ruth and Boaz. So notice with me what happens in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 3. It says, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman." And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, meaning a relative that's closer than them. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the, let it not be known that the woman came to a threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and she went into the city. Now, once again, so that we all get what's going on here, folks, notice two key things about this second half of the story that clearly again shows us, I need you to see this, how integrity is heaped upon integrity in this chapter here. And the first thing that we need to notice, and this kind of go along, goes along with Ruth's risky thing, is that what Bo- Boaz experienced was great temptation. Give me a head nod that we all understand that one. That what Boaz must have experienced here, and there's some evidence here in the text, is great temptation. So track what's going on here. As we've already seen, Ruth goes behind one of the piles of barley, lies down, and uncovers his feet. And then it says in verse 8 that at midnight, that literally means in the half of the night, when it was most dark, full of wine, and with a heart that was merry, it says Boaz was startled, finding a young, beautiful woman lying in his partially uncovered legs with a sweet scent, nice clothes, and an innocent look. And then she says to him in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant. And now again, we know from understanding the Old Testament, given its laws and customs, that this was clearly a request for marriage. That most likely, based upon Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, this was simply a, a, a symbol of her saying, please take me under your care, take me under your wing. In that provocative setting, she was saying, I'm coming to you innocently, saying that I would be willing to be your wife. And then she says, because you're a redeemer, a close relative who, who can redeem me via marriage. And folks, what we need to see is that it couldn't have taken Boaz very long to realize that this was an intimate move on Ruth's part in the form of a marriage proposal, and that if he wanted to, he could have done anything that he wanted to. You need to see this. He was under great temptation. 
If Boaz wanted to in that morally chaotic time, he could have taken clear advantage of this situation. He could have capitalized on the setting given in to what we have to assume was some sexual excitement given the scene already in him. I mean, who's going to know? Naomi made sure that it was in the middle of the night. Most all the people were gone. Boaz was in in an out-of-the-way place, probably behind a pile of grain. And Naomi instructed Ruth, don't forget this, to do whatever he tells you. I mean, I was thinking about it here, and I don't mean to be too forward, but what would the average guy have done in this situation? And what would the average Christian guy have done? I mean, I know we live in morally chaotic times now. And so I'm ashamed to think what even the average Christian guy would have done in a very provocative setting like this. But then notice, and this is so key to this chapter, notice what Boaz does. This is B on your outline. And that's that what he did was right. That Ruth did something risky and then she did what was right. Boaz was under great temptation, but what he did here was right. So don't miss, having full knowledge of the applicable Redeemer laws and knowing that he was a close relative but not the next in line, and being a man of strong character, being a man who loves God, he chose to do what was right. He told Ruth that he would love to marry her, but he needed to make sure first that the closest relative did not want to redeem her and that if he didn't, he was going to. It was the right thing to do. And think about it, folks. Even if Boaz was the next in line as a kinsman redeemer, I don't think he still would have taken advantage of this situation. He would have waited until a proper betrothal and marriage could happen in a God-honoring way. His character shows this throughout the entire story. And then further, if you're not convinced, in keeping with his high integrity and doing the right thing, he has Ruth stay the night, but at his feet, symbolizing no further movement in intimate response. This was to protect her from having to travel home alone at night. And then he had her get up early so that nobody would see them together and begin to put two and two together. And then he even sent her home with food so that her and Naomi would continue to be provided for. Folks, no matter how you slice it, what Boaz does here is right. You got Ruth, you got Boaz, both doing what is right, both acting as people of integrity in the midst of very risky and tempting circumstances. That's what chapter 3 is all about here. Now, in a few minutes we have remaining this morning, there are two very clear and life-changing things that you and I take away from this story. This is going to be the practical application time, and we need to spend a few minutes unpacking this for our lives. So I want to suggest to you two things. These are on your outline there. The, the story gives us that we can take away for our lives here today in the 21st century in our morally chaotic times as well. And here's the first thing, and hopefully you haven't, you haven't missed this yet, and that is that integrity is simply knowing and choosing what is right. Listen, folks, not many of us have had a good working definition of integrity up to this point in our lives. We really don't know what that word means. So here it is. Integrity is simply knowing and choosing what is right. And don't miss the two core ingredients here that we see in both Ruth and Boaz's actions. And that is that integrity, if it's going to ever be integrity, involves both knowledge about what is right as well as the will to choose what is right. And if you have lack either, you're not going to have integrity. It's not very complicated. First, notice with me that integrity involves knowing what is right. And some of you, because I know how you think, are immediately saying, well, Jamie, how do we know what is right? I'm so glad that you asked. 
Look up here on the screen. Let me give you what I've used for years, what I call the three W's on how you discern what is right. Give me another click here, James. Thanks. I didn't think that is Jim back there, right? Or is it Don? Anyways, um, and, and the three W's are this. Word, wisdom, and within. Those are the three W's. And by the way, in this order of how you discern what is right, you begin with the Word of God. And you ask yourselves, does the Word of God give me any clear guidance on what is right in the situation that I'm facing right now? And you know what's so cool? Is that out of 66 books of the Bible, spanning a period of almost 2,000 years, there's a really good chance that somebody else has gone through what you're going through and that there's some clear directive on what is right for you. Problem is, as we're going to see in a minute, you still have to choose what is right, but you're not going to be able to weasel out of it saying, I didn't know what was right. And if for some reason the word is not really clear about what is right, if it's maybe what we call a gray area, then you move on to the second step, which is what we call wisdom. In other words, you ask other people, you seek wisdom, you read godly books, and and you lay it out before God, and you say, God, through others and through Christian writings and through the wisdom that I get from you, help me discern what is right in this situation. I was counseling a guy just this week who's struggling with some decisions in his life. And it was really kind of fun. We sat there in my office and given his circumstances, which I obviously can't share with you because they're very personal, uh, I I was able to clearly say, well, in this area, the word is very clear. It's black and white. Here's what needs to be done. And you just need to now go out and do it. I said, but on this aspect of it, it's it's not really clear. I can't say if it's sinful or not, but, but there's wisdom needed. And so what do you think I did? I said, check with your close godly friends. Here's my wisdom on this situation. And, and I said, and more than anything, let's pray. Why? Because the book of James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and he's going to give it. So you got the word, you got wisdom. And then lastly, the Bible also says each of us has a conscience. And so third in line, not first, most Americans listen to their conscience first, that's bad. Third in line, you say, what is my heart telling me here? You know what's so cool? Is that we see evidence of these three things right in play in chapter 3 here. You got the word, Ruth relying on these redemptive laws contained in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. She's listening to God's word. You got wisdom. You got Boaz saying, hey, stay the night, leave early. All this wisdom in play here. And then you got this conscience thing going on. Boaz giving Ruth food. He's listening to his heart. He's saying, you know what, I have to have integrity here, and I need to be able to know what is right, and it's right to give you food. Folks, what I have found is that in every single situation in life, I have known the right thing to do through these three W's. I have. I'm going to give you an illustration on how this all works in a second. But before that, notice the second thing, however, involved in integrity, and that is that when you're at the word, wisdom, within level, you're only halfway there because now you only know what to do, but then you have to choose what to do. And here are the two keys to choosing. And that is that you must be willing and you must be trusting. And I don't mean trusting of yourself or others. I mean of God. In other words, for you to be able to choose what you know is right, you need to have a willing spirit, a tender heart that says, God, I want to do this. Interesting, you still haven't done it yet. But your heart is saying, I want to, God, I want to do this. And then for you to take an action step to do it, you've got to trust Him that he's in play here, and that as you've sought him in his word, and you've sought wisdom, and you're listening to your conscience, and as you're willing to do this, he's going to enter in and run interference as only he can. I mean, that's exactly what Ruth was doing here. 
She relied on God's law. She relied on Naomi's wisdom. She listened to her conscience. She, she, she was willing. She said in verse 5, what you want me to do, I will do. But then all throughout this, she had to trust God. And we know Boaz trusted God because he makes this comment halfway through the scene where he says, as the Lord lives, this is what I do as the Lord lives. But we know that he was focusing on God during this time and trusting in him. That's how you have integrity. And folks, all I can say is that you and I have an opportunity to live this. I got to believe almost every single day with the choices that are before us. Amen? I mean, almost every day. I I can't even imagine uh, living in 21st century Scottsdale, Phoenix, America with all that goes on around us without having some chance almost every single day to apply these things. To choose to either be a Ruth and Boaz or to choose some of the negative examples in the Bible. To choose to be about the Word and wisdom and within, willing and trusting, focused on God, doing the right thing, or not. Even as a pastor, I'm plagued with decisions every day on what I'm going to do with my integrity. The year was 1995. I was an associate pastor of a small church in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, as an associate pastor, I think that year I was making about thirty-five, $37,000 a year. I just had my third kid. We were living in a very, very small house, barely having two nickels to rub together. I was driving, I think I told you guys this, at that time I was driving a 1983 Malibu station wagon. Remember those things? So that just tells you the socioeconomic status of Kim and I at that time. And like so many Americans, we had gotten ourselves in just a little bit of credit card debt. I had a Discover card at that time, and I had about $1,200 outstanding uh, debt on the credit card. And I didn't feel good about that, and I knew that wasn't the right thing to do, but it was there. And 1200 bucks might not seem like a lot today, but when you're making thirty-five, dollars $38,000 a year with three kids, that's a lot of money. So I'll never forget one day sitting in my office at church, because I didn't have a home office back then. Again, really small home. And I was paying bills, and it was a Saturday. And I opened up my Discover card bill, and I noticed that it had bumped up to $2,000 that month. And my immediate thought was, Kim, right? I thought, what in the world did she do now? But as I looked at the charges, and Kim and I are very close in our communication, I realized that she didn't spend this money. This was when fraudulent charges were just starting to happen. So I immediately called the Discover card company. I said, hey, you got 800 bucks here that I promise you are not our charges. They're from mail order catalogs that we don't even order from. So somebody obviously has gotten hold of my credit card. They were very nice, very kind. They said, Mr. Rasmussen, we'll take care of it. I put the issue to rest. Next month, I got my credit card bill. I opened it up, and the entire balance was down to zero. Okay? It went from 2000 now down to zero, saying you don't owe anything. And I sat there for about two minutes, and I pondered all of this. Are you seeing where this is going? I sat there, and I thought, what a gift from God, right? I thought they must have misunderstood what I said. They obviously thought I was saying that all of these things were fraudulent, and so they just wiped the whole thing clean. And like many of you do, even as a pastor, I started thinking things in my mind of how to justify this. Honestly, I thought to myself, well, this is their mistake, not mine. I told the truth, so they obviously are making the choice that they're making. And then I thought, you know, and they got a lot more money than I do, obviously. And then even, we know how sinful we can think, I thought, well, you know, maybe they meant to do this. Maybe they were being gracious to me and, you know, just sort of saying Merry Christmas or something like that. I mean, all these things within a span of about two minutes are going through my mind. And then I caught myself and I said, stop it, Rasmussen. You know the right thing to do here. Pick up the phone and do it. And that's indeed what I did. 
And I got to tell you, I, I was so hoping that they would say, ah, forget it, Mr. Rasmussen, it's our mistake. And they didn't. They said, thank you for pointing that out to us. We will put 1200 bucks immediately back upon your credit. And I had to pay it off slowly, just like the rest of us have to do. Now, folks, I want you to think about this with me, because I've unpacked this with crowds over the years before. Had I not done anything, think about this with me, had I not done anything, no one would have known, and my reputation would have still been intact, right? I, I mean, nobody was watching me in my office back then. This is between me and a credit card company. Like so many sins that people commit, nobody would be the wiser, and my reputation would still be what it is today. However, two things would have happened had I not done the right thing. The first thing is, is that my integrity, whether anybody noticed or not, would have been compromised. That's the first thing would have happened. My integrity before Almighty God and in light of all the angels in heaven and my integrity just plainly speaking, whether anybody saw it or not, would have been notched down. My character. Somebody once said that character is simply the sum of your behaviors strewn across the fabric of your life. That's character. The sum of your behaviors strewn across the fabric of your life. My character would have gone down a notch just in the way that I was as a person had I not chosen the right thing there. And secondly, and this means more to me than anything, God would have known. In other words, though nobody else was watching, and though my integrity would have been a bit damaged and nobody else would be the wiser, God would have known. And as I've said to you guys before, we're going to spend maybe 80, 90 years the most, well, there's a lady here who's 100, so maybe 100 years the most here on this earth, but you're going to spend eternity with God if you're a follower of Jesus. And I'd have to spend eternity with God who knew what I did. Uh, folks, there are so many ways that this all applies to you and I today. You are going to have Discover Card-like choices every day this week. And some of them are going to be super small, like on whether to be honest about something or not. Some of them are going to be really big, like a business decision or how to treat your family or something like that. And our integrity is in play on every one of them. That's why this idea of the Word and wisdom and within and being willing and trusting is so important. That's why Ruth chapter 3 matters eternally when it comes to our walk with God because our integrity is at stake. And integrity, the Scriptures tell us, always matters. And, and so listen, folks. Uh, the reason that it matters, and this is my last point to you this morning, is that integrity allows God to fulfill His purposes in and through you. Did you know that? Some of you aren't going to like this because you think that it's all about grace. And though it is about grace, and we looked at grace last week, and grace is an awesome thing, and God cuts us slack, and He forgives us, and He runs interference even when we do bonehead things. The reality is, the flip side of grace is that God also says that I'm banking on your integrity to do the right thing, and my movement in your life is partially, partially going to depend on your integrity. How many of you remember, because you've been around Scottsdale Bible for a while, when I first came here and I taught the book of Esther, and we talked about that phrase, God room. Give me a hand raise if you remember that, God room. Some of you really latched onto that. The fact that when we do the right thing, when we trust God with everything in us, and our behaviors follow suit, that gives God plenty of room to move and act in our lives. The flip side of that, by the way, is also true. 
that when we don't act right, when we don't follow through with integrity in our lives, though God still will move and act in our lives, many times it's a more painful moving and a painful acting. Uh, Maybe look at it this way, that when we know and choose the right, when we place our lives much closer to His heart and character, what it means is that God doesn't have as far to reach in accomplishing the things in and through us that He wants to. We're going to see this fall when we study the book of Jonah, that when we run from God like Jonah did, God indeed chases after us, but we're not focused on him when we're running from him, are we? (laughs) It's only when we turn like Jonah eventually did and look at God and trust him that God has our full attention and then as a result can fully use us. Don't miss this, folks. Integrity allows us to be usable and moldable in the hands of God, thus allowing his specific purposes to play out in our lives. And this is precisely, by the way, if you doubt this, in what we're going to see in chapter 4 next week week with Ruth. That as we go into chapter 4, you're going to see that the decisions they made in chapter 1 and the decisions they made about grace in chapter 2 and the decisions that they made about integrity here in chapter 3 are all going to come to a head in chapter 4 and God is going to enter in in a powerful way as only He can do And his response to their integrity shows himself as a God of mercy, love, grace, and action. And that's going to be the point of the book of Ruth, that we see God move historically in people's lives that matter today. Once a month in our worship planning, we try to intentionally have room in our service for extended time of prayer. Some of you say, well, you should have that every week, and we do pray every week, but we feel let's even emphasize prayer even more, and we have an extended time of prayer planned once a month during our corporate gatherings. And today is that day. And so many of you clock watchers have noticed that we have about seven, eight, nine minutes left in our service, and you were thinking, good, we get out early? No, no, no. What we're going to do right now is that we're going to have a very creative, wonderful time where I get to bless you guys with some prayer. And here's what I want to do. I've divided up uh, my notes here into three categories, three kind of groups of needs that I believe exist out here today uh, in our congregation. And those three categories are relational difficulties or relational needs, vocational, meaning employment, job difficulties or needs, and then spiritual vitality. And so what I mean by that is I'm going to ask you in a minute here that if you relate to any of these three categories to stand, and then I'm going to pray for you. And so if you are experiencing relational needs right now in your life, whether it be in your marriage or in your parenting or with your friendships, whether it be conflicts or just simply that you'd like prayer for them, I'm going to ask you to stand in a minute. And then if you're experiencing some vocational needs in your life right now, it might be employment, it might be difficulties at work, it might be dissatisfaction in your job, it might be that you just want a blessing for God to continue to protect you in your employment. I'm going to ask you to stand in a minute. And then I'm going to also ask those who want prayer for spiritual vitality to stand. And you know what I'm talking about. Freshness in the Word of God. A prayer life that's vibrant. Fellowship with other believers that is meaningful. Obedience and strength to do the right things, what we've talked about today. If you're looking for spiritual vitality, I'm going to ask you to pray. And let me just tell you that as I pray for you, it's going to be a similar prayer for each group, but but subtly different, in that I've been praying for my kids, my family, a similar prayer all week, all year actually. And that's it. as Hannah just went to college and I was driving home from Flagstaff, my prayer for her was for joy, protection, favor, 
and satisfaction. In other words, joy with others, protection from others, favor with teachers and leaders, and then ultimately, because whatever happens about those first three prayers, I prayed that Hannah would have sufficiency in her relationship with God and satisfaction, that God would show himself to her continually as one who is totally sufficient for her. So think about it, joy, protection, favor, sufficiency. That's what I want to pray for for you today. And so let's do this. If you're in that first category, if you would like prayer on a relational level for some sort of relational need in your life right now, I want you to stand right now, just where you are, just stand. And for those of you who remain sitting, would you please join me in prayer, bow your heads, as we pray for our brothers and sisters right now. Father, you have created us to be the kind of people who find joy in relationship. And so God, each of the people that are standing here right now are people who have sought joy in relationship, but right now that that joy is most likely waning or at least threatened for some reason. And so Father, I want to pray just your richest favor and protection upon these people. Uh, Lord, there might be forgiveness that needs to happen in a relationship. There might need to be reconciliation that needs to happen in some of these circumstances. There might need to be a softening of a heart and a tenderness. There might need to be some protection that somebody's searching for right now, Lord, in a relationship. And God, I pray that your blessing would be upon these people on a relational level. And then lastly, Lord, I pray for them that they would also have integrity of heart to seek out their sufficiency and satisfaction ultimately in you. That they would realize, Lord, that though you do give joy in relationship and you're very concerned relationally about us, that, God, you're most concerned that we find our satisfaction and sufficiency in you. As they're standing here now full of faith, focused on you, may they find their satisfaction in you. Lord, in short, we pray that you would move in these people's lives on a relational level. Bless them indeed. You may be seated. For those of you who would like prayer now on a vocational level, maybe with your job or with just something, would you stand right now? And we'd like to bless you and pray for you. We all know a very, very tough time still economically. And so we've been praying for you a lot behind the scenes. We want to pray publicly now for you on a vocational level. So Father God, as these folks are standing here right now, we want to lift them up to you when it comes to some of the needs they have in their lives, when it comes to their jobs. And Father, for some folks standing here right now, we know that that they might be looking for work and they're out of work. And God, we pray that you would bless them, favor them, God, with some uh, work. And specifically, Lord, we would not be shy to pray for them for work that would uh, be in line with their giftedness and their passions, what they're trained to do. Lord, would you please move in their lives on that level. And Father, we know too that your word has told us that you want us to have joy in our work. Uh, Genesis makes it clear that we're to till the garden, and though it will at times produce thorns and thistles, that it's also going to produce fruit, and we'll take joy in the production of our hands and our minds. And so, God, I would pray that these folks would find joy in their work. If some of them are having difficulties with their bosses or their employers or what have you, God, we pray that you would give them joy, that you'd work in those circumstances. And Father, lastly, we pray for those who are just struggling with their home businesses, struggling with their businesses right now, that God, indeed, you would bless them, cause them to hang on. I think of a guy who came to me the other day, God, and said that he he needed this one account, and this one account would really set him up during this recession for the near future. God, we pray that as I prayed for him, that, that, Lord, you'd favor these people on that level and help them to live with integrity and find their sufficiency, their satisfaction, ultimately, in you. 
And then if you folks would be seated, we want to pray for one last group here this morning. And that's for those of you who are wanting prayer for spiritual vitality, for your walk with God right now, would you please stand and let all of us pray for you as well. Father, um, it does my heart good to see the vast majority of our people standing right now. Uh, To realize, Lord, that there are indeed deep needs that we all have on spiritual levels because we're created to be spiritual beings. And Father, my simple prayer for these people is that you would give them what the scriptures refer to as joy unspeakable. That as your Holy Spirit lives in them, that your spirit would bless them with freshness in your word. May they understand your word and get a lot out of it. Pray that they might have vitality in their prayer life, that they would have a passion to pray to you like Jesus would be returning tomorrow, which he very well could, that they would find passion in their discussion with you. I pray, God, you give them sweet fellowship with other believers that might be rich and meaningful. And Lord, too, I pray that you might bless them in worship as they seek you in worship and, and trust you. And Lord, I pray lastly, you'd give them obedience and strength to follow you. Lord, we live in perilous times where integrity at times can be so waning. I pray that these people would find such freshness in you, such intimacy with you, that God, they would lead lives of integrity that, as Jesus said, would be like lights shining on a hill to those around them. Bless them, Lord, with joy, protection, favor, and satisfaction with you, I pray. And Lord, we just lift up these people to you right now in all three categories, relationally, vocationally, and spiritually. And we do so always with expectation. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. If you'd be seated right now, what we want to do is bless you by just having you meditate for maybe a minute and a half, two minutes as we sing to you. Um, And just use this as an intimate time between you and God. And then I'm going to wrap us up with a benediction. Jesus cares for me. Listen to the word of God. It says, Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. And all of us say together, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.